if you're in the middle, right, if you're actually not playing at the world of saving consumers time and making their lives easier or giving them experiences worth sharing, you're kind of becoming decommoditized. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined with my good friend and long-term colleague, Matt Britton, who is the CEO and founder of Suzy. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Great to see you. It's always great to catch up. And today, we're going to dive into your entrepreneurial journey. So I want to start with that. You've had an amazing career that has really spanned the worlds of brand marketing and youth and technology. Take us through that journey that started, you know, what, one month after you started, left college? Yeah, I actually started during college. So during college, I was a nightclub promoter. Very early on in college, somebody who was a couple years older than me asked me to start handing out flyers outside a nightclub in Boston where I went to school, asking people to come to the next party that he was throwing. And something about that experience in terms of getting to dictate people's actions and their behaviors was really exciting to me to be able to tell somebody, hey, take this flyer, go here, and then they did. And then from that, I started to kind of start my own little business during college, a nightclub promotions business, which actually grew pretty big because Boston has a wealth of universities and colleges there, and there was no shortage of kids that want to go out and have a good time. And I actually built a, a really sizable business for somebody who was in college. And then what started to happen at the end of my college career is local businesses started to call me and say, can we put our logo on your flyer? Can we put up a banner inside your nightclub? And I started to work with a lot of local companies, and I start to get deeper relationships with these local businesses to the point where they start to ask me, can you do other things for us? Can you help us get on this new thing called the web, which was new at that time in the year 2000, 1999-2000. And I started my first agency about that time. It was called the Magma Group. I came up with the name because I was watching the movie Austin Powers, and they said liquid hot magma, so I called it Magma Group. And the timing was really fortuitous because the internet bubble was just starting to get bigger and bigger, and I came up with the idea that maybe these college kids who were working for me at the time, handing out flyers on behalf of the local businesses I was working with, maybe it's small like it's scale. And I start to actually build a network of college kids at other colleges across the country and then start to call on some of these big emerging internet companies like eBay and Lycos and Yahoo, right when we were first starting, and actually use this student rep network to essentially help them launch their dot-coms. And what we did was really funny. These businesses at that point were really valued on the amount of registered users they had. And I came up with the idea that I could have my student reps walk around with clipboards, get other students to fill out their username and password with pen and paper, and then basically, I would have them data entered into the website and get paid sort of on a bounty basis. Imagine that in this day and age with the age of privacy. But it worked, and we grew a pretty sizable business to about $5 million in revenue, but then the dot-com bubble burst. And I learned about this thing called account receivables, and it's not always guaranteed. The business kind of imploded, and that was sort of the end of my very first entrepreneurial journey right after college. I love it. Yeah. And so you took that, and you went on. You built your career kind of at that intersection of helping big brands connect with youth yeah the emerging meaning of what that means why were you inspired to keep going and focusing on youth as that source of inspiration because what i learned so after that experience happened i worked for a company called alloy here in new york for a couple years and then i left and started mr youth in 2002 and at that point what happened was a lot of major companies have sort of written off the internet after the bubble burst. They thought it was kind of a fad, almost like people think Bitcoin is right now. And I saw what was happening with these young people, and I saw how powerful the internet was in terms of how they communicated, how they did research, how they consume media, et cetera. And I basically knew that there was this big divide. And the divide was that 
companies that were sitting in boardrooms had no idea what was going on in the sidewalks and that the future was really dictated what was going on in the sidewalks. And that whole notion still exists today. There's such a big disconnect between the people who are making these big corporate decisions and actually what's really happening. And I was always inspired by the fact that I could be that sort of bridge because I, w- I had passion about what was going on at the street level, but I also sort of had the sophistication and kind of strategy, if you will, to be able to speak to the businesses and connect the dots. And that's kind of been my thing ever since. So talking about that street level kind of insight, yeah. in 2015, you wrote your first book, Youth Nation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about it is you talk that youth isn't an age, but it's really about this mindset. And that mindset's the street level that yep. you just talked about. So. Yep. What do you really mean by that, that uh, it's a commodity that's available to everyone if they embrace it and take advantage of it? So I think it starts with, I mean, that that notion was really built around the millennial generation and their impact on the world. And I often get asked, why are millennials so important? And the reality is they were the first generation that grew up with the internet in the household. So if you think about it, when I, when I grew up, there was no, no internet. And the way we communicated, the way we found out about information was completely different. And this generation that grew up with the internet in the house on Gen Z is just an extension of that, really looks at the world differently. Their brains are hardwired differently. And for them, it's intuitive to say, why would I ever want to pick up the phone and call a car service when I can hit a button and have an Uber show up, right? But for everyone else who was born before the internet age and grew up before the internet age, it's not intuitive. However, just because it's not intuitive to you doesn't mean you can't transform yourself to try to understand it. So that's really what Youth Nation is, is this world is driven by the millennial mentality. Institutions that have been around for centuries are now being taken down through this millennial mentality. But just because you you aren't that age doesn't mean that it's beyond you. You just have to kind of go to the sidewalks and you have to understand what's going on and transform your mindset. And the reality is many companies just can't or they have C-suites full of old white men that are on golden parachutes that really have no incentive to. And those are the companies like the Toys R Us of the world that are going out of business, right? So, but it's really up to everyone, whether you run a florist or you run a large organization to really understand and embrace this new mentality because we're not going backwards. I love that. So, you know, one of the things you've talked about is that today's generation, you know, this millennial and why they're important, they're actually leading to the inevitable extinction of branding. Yes. You know, that's a pretty provocative thing coming from a guy who's made his career out of marking and advertising and yep. branding and everything else. So what do you mean by that? What's this inevitable extinction of branding? So I think during, you know, starting with the 50s and, you know, the TV industrial complex, which is basically there was three channels in television and the family would kind of gather around and watch the Ed Sullivan show, whatever it was TV. That's where a lot of the kind of most uh, traditional and prolific brands in this country were built, whether it be Hershey's or Tide, et cetera, because they were able to tell stories and the consumers had no other way to access information besides the stories the brands were telling. And that is sort of the heart of branding. That continued from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way until the point where the internet really started to give consumers power and allowed them to understand is the ingredients in Tide really different than the ingredients in, you know, the Kohl's or, or Walgreens private label laundry detergent? And to, to a certain extent, the answer is no. And the reality is for, for so many decades, consumers believed in the stories that brands told us about themselves and because it gave people sort of a social currency. But now... In, with many categories, especially the low involvement categories, whether it be soap or toothpaste or detergent or shampoo, it doesn't really matter what brand you have as long as it actually provides the utility 
and what we're looking for. And if you look at the growth of the fastest growing brands, most of them are not those brands that allow you to tell a story about yourself. Like when I grew up, you know, Nike told me if I wore Nikes, I'd become a better basketball player, but it didn't work, right? It's actually the brands that make your lives easier or the brands that provide you with an experience worth sharing. And it's really at those ends where I think businesses and, and companies are thriving. They're either companies like Amazon or Uber that make your life easier by saving you time, or they're brands that are providing you with tremendous experiences that you want to share and talk about, whether it be Coachella, whether it be Tao nightclub and restaurant, things that actually you actually want to go to, take photos of, and actually share the MBA, right? But if you're in the middle, right? If you're actually not playing at the world of saving consumers time and making their lives easier or giving them experiences worth sharing, you're kind of becoming decommoditized. And unfortunately, so many brands that our country has been built on from an economic standpoint live in the middle right now. Many of which are, you know, companies like P&G, which is in your backyard. At Predicting the Turn, we talk a lot about growth challenges facing business leaders today. And as we talk about growth, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Chinatown Bureau. Chinatown Bureau is a consumer experience firm solely focused on driving brand growth. They move brands beyond advertising towards a new brand growth playbook. They do this by building the strategies and technology tools that make each customer relationship as valuable as possible, streamlining operations and creating new revenue opportunities. Their clients are Fortune 500s and high-growth startups alike, and their engagements range from strategy development through full implementation of a new consumer experience. If you're experiencing slow brand growth and looking for a better solution beyond just advertising, visit ChinatownBureau.com to schedule a call today. So before we jumped in and started recording, we were talking about free agency. And back earlier this year, you gave an awesome talk in Barcelona mm-hmm. that was on the global global millennial impact. Yep. And one of the things you talked about was this switch to free agency yep. and this generation of employees that want a different way of working and thinking about jobs and careers, et cetera. How do big companies need to respond to that? And what's it going to mean across the entire workforce. Yes. So when I was growing up, again, in the pre-millennial generation, it was get a job at a Fortune 500, become a doctor, lawyer, work your way up the corporate ladder, right, to a enviable income. You were protected if you worked within the walls of these large organizations. But the reality is that the average age of a company in the Fortune 500 was 50 or 60 years old in the 1960s, and now it's 10 to 12 years old because there's so much disruption. There's M&A, and these companies aren't around as long as they used to be. And consumers really, I mean, employees, future employees really need to be forward facing in terms of where the world is headed, not where the world was. And in that regard, there's a new version of the American dream, which is if you learn an enviable skill set, right, that's highly marketable. So if you're a Ruby on Rails coder or you are a YouTube search engine optimizer, if you have these deep skill sets, if you can actually produce podcasts, right, there is no shortage of companies that will pay you for your time and actually give you the flexibility and freedom that I think is really at the center of the millennial ideals. And that's why you see companies like WeWork so dramatically expanding because everybody now wants to become the CEO of themselves. They don't want their future to be dictated by these large corporations, which those corporations themselves have no idea kind of where the future is actually headed. So I think there is a new version of the American dream. And to answer your question, what companies actually do need to respond is they actually need to move closer to city centers. So you look at a company like Kimberly Clark in Nina, Wisconsin, and it's incredibly hard for them to recruit really smart millennial talent that wants to move to Nina, Wisconsin. So instead, they've created an innovation center in 
in Chicago, and now what's starting to happen is all their smart young talent is actually moving to that innovation center in Chicago, and sooner or later, that's going to become sort of their center. Right. And I think you're going to start to see that with McDonald's. They just moved in Chicago. GE now is an innovation center here in New York City. And because they don't want a lot of the young employees don't want to go out to Stanford, Connecticut. It's happening over and over and over again. So that's really what they need to do is they need to sort of uh, change with the times, move from these sprawling suburban, uh, you know, suburban enclaves back into the city. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, when you were growing up, the the goal was work for the big company, work there for 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. Today, you've got this environment of become the expert at YouTube or expert on yep. this or that. But those niches also change. They you do. Know, if you'd been a Vine expert five years ago, you made a lot of money. Today, you're unemployed. Right. So Maybe, did, maybe not. Yeah, if right. you switched. Right. So you know, there's this concept of continuous beta that I play around with that mm -hmm. we always have to be constantly changing and evolving. How do you think talent needs to be thinking about that mindset of evolving instead of just becoming it's an expert question. for 50 years? becoming an expert every couple of years. I think in your Vine example, the people who were popular on Vine were popular and successful because they knew how to make great content. And they knew and they understood consumer insights and they and they were creative enough to bottle those insights into short form content that people actually want to see and share. And that is a is a skill that can manifest in a variety of different platforms. Right. So they weren't the if they were smart, they weren't dependent upon Vine. They were dependent upon that unique skill set. And the way I look at it is, you know, it used to be that if you were, you know, great at interviewing people, you could only be on TV. Then you could be on radio. Now you could be on podcasts. If you understand the different mediums over time where the attention is, it almost doesn't really matter what the attention is. You just kind of gravitate in that direction as long as you maintain that unique skill set that's differentiated. I look at those skill sets that are really important as either being deep into an art or deep into a science. Deep into an art meaning that you are a writer, you're a designer. You do things that the machines can't. Or you go deep into a science, which is that you're a coder or an engineer, you can build and operate the machines. I think where the risk is, is being somewhere in the middle, because the reality is it's much more inexpensive for a company to ask somebody in Costa Rica or India what to do than here in the United States. But, you know, if you have those skill sets, then those jobs are far more complicated to become outsourced. I love that. And so what I think really important about what you just said is people need to be asking themselves the same thing companies need to. Absolutely. Which is what industry am I in? Yep. You know, it's the railroad companies that forgot that the most valuable thing was their real estate that yep. could be telecommunication. So people need to be asking that same thing. Yeah, or McDonald's, if you saw the movie on Ray Kroc, they were in the real estate industry as well. They weren't necessarily in the hamburger industry. Yeah, ask what you're in. Yeah. So related to that, then, you've consulted with over half of the Fortune 500 over your career, mm -hmm. from Mr. Youth to you know, what you've done with uh, Alloy and other companies. Uh -huh. What do you think big brands and big companies continue to get wrong when it comes to understanding the changes in society, whether that's youth or technology or culture or really any other area? I think it's the basis behind my new company, Susie, frankly, which is they aren't listening to consumers and trying to build their business as a reflection of it. They are taking what is often their myopic opinions or guesses or having what I, uh, you know, there's three G's. It's uh, guesses, Google searches, and guys with MBAs. <laughs> um, I forget who said that, but it's the truth drive their decision making. But what's not really driving their decision making is the consumer. They're not listening enough to actually where the actual world is headed. And the businesses that do, the businesses that have that first party data, the businesses that can listen to consumers, see how quickly things are changing, where their tastes and sophistications are changing and can evolve accordingly are the ones that are going to survive and thrive. And the reality is so many companies, like I tried to cancel DirecTV because it was $250 a month. And 
YouTube TV was $50 a month and it took me two hours to cancel DirecTV, right? So that's obviously a brand that's not listening to consumers because if you do a search on Twitter, all you see is complaints of consumers who have the same experience that I did. So what does that mean for their brand and how they're going to survive in the future when they're going against cloud-based companies, which when it takes 10 seconds to set up? So that's a perfect example. And those are the types of companies that, you know, the ones that are listening and evolving are going to thrive and the ones that aren't and kind of stuck in our old ways aren't. So that's a perfect segue to talk about Suzy, yep. which is your latest venture with the premise of helping everyday business decisions be made through the voice of the consumer. Yep. So what inspired you to do that? And, you know, because it was a business that was originally spun out of yep. your last agency, yeah. right? Yeah. So as you know, as well as anybody, you know, in running an agency world, so much of the decisions that are making it big brands, whether they like X piece of creative or Y piece of creative is made by what we now call the hippo, which is the highest paid person's opinion. So let's just say the CMO of a large company's name is John, right? And you'd have this amazing idea and you'd work with the brand manager on it and everything's great. And then finally, what the, what she'll tell you is, oh, I love this idea. I just need to run it by John first, right? And then you'll have that big meeting with John and John will come in late and he'll sit at the end of the table and he'll pontificate. And sometimes he'll just say, no, I don't like it. And 99.9% .9 of the time that that happened to me, it was just his own opinion. There was actually, or maybe his daughter told him on the way to school that Ariana Grande is no longer cool, so we shouldn't do an Ariana Grande concert, right? There's actually no data behind it. And I knew there had to be an antidote for that. Now, the traditional antidote for that is market research. But the issue with market research is it's slow, it's overly methodical, it's analysis paralysis. If you've ever seen a market research company come back with reports, 50 pages, when the reality is what, there's one or two insights that actually allow you to make decisions, and it's incredibly expensive. So when I joined CrowdTap, which is a company that was built on influencer marketing, but had a massive network of over a million consumers who are earning points for creating and sharing content, I quickly came to the realization that the real value in these million people wasn't them creating and sharing content because that, there were far more kind of high quality ways for brands to be able to source short form content. But the real value was actually getting consumers in real time to give their opinion and feedback on things. And that's sort of where the pivot happened from CrowdTap to Suzy. What we have today with Suzy is a, a network of over 1.3 million US consumers who are still on this gamified platform called CrowdTap. But the only difference is they are earning rewards not for creating and sharing content anymore, but for answering questions in real time. And what it allows brands to do, we have now over 150 companies on Suzy, is actually ask questions to a sub-segment of that consumer base and get same meeting results of what piece of packaging do you like better? What ad do you like better? What do you think about in the morning before you brush your teeth? Where do you buy um, you know, deodorant? And uh, what, how much would you pay for X product? And actually not have to wait but instantly have 500 consumers give you qualitative answers to help drive that decision making. So in the world where everything's changing, in the world where millennials are now Gen Z and what was hot yesterday is not hot anymore, it allows these brands that are often so disconnected to really have their ear to the ground and allow their business to be driven from the sidewalks and not from the boardrooms. And those are the companies that are going to survive and thrive. So fast or rewind back to the days of CrowdTap yes. when you decide to spin it out from yep. MRY. Yeah. You know, a lot of big companies struggle with that new innovative line of business yep. of, do I keep it inside? Yep. Do I let it free to do? And they don't know what to do. They don't know how to wrestle with that and think about that yep. embracing an innovation. So how do you think about that as the CEO looking at this new innovative line and decide to let it go and launch it as it's something independent? 
Well, I can't really take all the credit for that. I mean, I had an amazing team. And I think what we had done is the impetus behind CrowdTap was those stu same student reps that I had hired during college, we were doing for a Mr. Youth for a multitude of brands. And we had built a platform called Rep Nation where all the student reps lived on. And then one of my employees who was a really bright guy, Brandon Evans said, you know, the software behind Rep Nation could actually be its own business because there's this new thing called word of mouth marketing and bloggers that all these other publishers and agencies actually want to build and offer to their clients. So what if we actually built software behind it? And he was the one who actually had the original vision to say, you know what, this is a different type of business. And what has led me to success in my career is actually when I find someone that seems like they know what they're doing, let them run with it. And sometimes I make the right bet, sometimes I make the wrong bets. With Brandon, it was the right bet. He teamed up with another guy named Kareem Kudos, who was the engineer, and they just went into a corner of the office and started building CrowdTap. I went on a road show with Brandon and actually helped them sell in a couple of their first clients. And then Brandon and I took a step back and said, you know what, there could be tremendous value creation by actually spitting this out of an agency, because the reality is an agency is when your biggest client says jump, you say how high, and all of a sudden the product roadmap of the software kind of goes out the window. By spinning it out, this company can actually dictate its own direction. After about a year or two, we found enough traction that we went and raised venture capital from the Foundry Group. This was back in 2011. And CrowdTap was kind of off to the races. And I basically sat as chairman of the board of CrowdTap, but simultaneously continued to build the agency and just time sort of lined up right that Brandon had moved on when I left Publicist Group, who had acquired the agency to rejoin CrowdTap. So it kind of just all worked out, but it definitely wasn't just my vision. It was the vision of our team and, and the market was really dictating that decision. I'm obviously glad that we're able to make that decision. So one of the things people I think struggle though, when they're in the seat you were in, is you often peep times the employees that have those ideas are also your best people. And it's okay, well, yeah. Do I let him go for two years to see if he can do this and I lose him for today, right. what I really need? So how do you balance that? I mean, I think the reality is that they're never your people. Yeah. You know, they're in their journey. So Brandon was an entrepreneur stuck inside an agency. Now, we were an entrepreneurial agency, but that was his passion. So I had two choices. I could either let him run with the passion and allow me to go along for the ride and be part of it, or one day have him come into my office and say, you know what, I'm going to start my own thing. And I think so many companies, they don't embrace people's true passions or side hustles. So you have employees that actually have an Etsy business. And when their boss comes by, they switch Gmail tabs to go to actually their work one, but they're really focused. The reality is that most people will never be as passionate about your business as you as CEO. And you actually have to realize and embrace that and support people's other endeavors just like they're supporting yours. And know that the more you support their endeavors, the more passionate they're gonna be for you. And then they're gonna support you, not because they're scared of you, because they don't wanna let you down. And I found that over and over and over again. In the case of Brandon, it just happened to be that our interests ultimately were aligned. And you know what? Karma came back to me. Because here I am running an organization now, seven years later, that would not have been possible if I didn't believe in him to begin with. Oh, I love that. And there's a great thing I heard a CEO say the other day that they said, our job today is to be a division one coach mm -hmm. more than anything else. So true. We only have a few years with somebody and yep. our job is to make the most of them yep. and, and help them be better. Sometimes maybe you get lucky. And, you know, I'm blessed in that so many of our executives at Suzy are people who actually came back, who used to work with me at MRY and then went on their own journeys and actually came back. So you don't get that as a division one coach because after they graduate, they graduate. The benefit of having those relationships, having people come back to you that you know and trust is tremendous. Yeah. And a big that. reason why we've been so successful. I love that.
So I want to switch and end on a different note. Sure. Um, you, one of the things that you've made a, a kind of a core belief for you is giving back mm-hmm. and making a difference in society and the world and yep. leaving the world a better place. So one of those things is Pencils of Promise. Mm-hmm. So how did you discover Pencil of Promise and why has it been such an important cause for you over the years? So Pencils of Promise kind of came into my life through one of my first employees, actually my very first employee, Doug Aiken, who I think you know, actually met Adam Braun at one of the first early iterations of, of Summit Series. Elliot Bisnow put a dinner together and Doug was there and he met Adam and Adam told him about his story. Doug told me about it. We were just at that time, I think it was 2008, where we were getting enough scale that we we had the ability and the luxury to invest in causes and purpose. Because at a certain point, you just don't, you want to give back, but you actually have to put food on the plates of your employees and you don't have that luxury. But we did have that luxury. Adam came in, he told us his story. It just so perfectly fit with our mission because here I am building a career. And at that point, I just had um, my second child, my son. And when you have kids, you start to look at life in a different way, you know, and when your kids talk about what you do, you don't want them to just say you're you're helping companies sell Doritos and Xboxes and pizza, right? You want to actually have more of a meaningful impact. So the timing was really fortuitous in many different ways. And here's Adam talking about how he's dedicated his entire life to actually giving back to kids. And here I am making my career off of selling and a lot of times crap to kids. And I just knew I had to balance that out. And as a result, we actually became Pencils of Promise first official corporate sponsor. We built a school. Adam went down to the school and sent a video of him with our Mr. Youth, um, you know, sign outside in, in Laos and Southeast Asia with all these kids saying thank you. And it just had an impact on me like I've it's never had in my life before. And a couple of years later, I traveled with Adam and a couple other people who are heavily involved with the organization and actually saw the inner workings. And what Adam created at Pencils of Promise was really something that you know, I'll never forget for the rest of my life and the opportunity I'm so thankful for. So to this day, um, still involved. My daughter actually um, donated all of our bat mitzvah money to Pencils of Promise. I'm constantly looking for opportunities to give back. And it's just something that I, I ha- ultimately have a passion about youth. And this is, this is giving back to youth versus sort of commercializing youth. And I think I, now at this point in my life, I always need that counterbalance. I can feel good about my talents and kind of what I'm the mark I'm going to leave on society ultimately. I love it. Well, I think that's an amazing place to end. So Matt, thank you for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks uh, so much for having You've made an me. amazing mark on the world. So thank you. Thank you for Thanks, everything Dave. you've done. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.